Psalm 65, verse 1. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and are the farthest sea who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The streams of God is full of water. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadow meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Well, this is a psalm of praise, a song of praise. Um, There's a little subscript uh, under the uh, title there for the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. It's a psalm of David, a song. So this was a song to be sung probably at harvest time. You get the feel uh, from the latter part of of the uh, psalm that it was a time of uh, harvest. And we're not really going to look at the whole psalm this morning. In fact, that part, the the latter portion, we won't look at. Uh, But let me just give you a, a brief outline of the uh, psalm as I see it. Uh, So David was calling the people to worship, calling them to praise God. And they were going to do it through song. And the praise had to do, related to, first of all, praise because God hears prayer. You see that in verse 2. And then praise because he forgives sin, verse 3. Praise because he graciously chooses to draw us to himself, verse 4. 
praise because he answers prayer through mighty deeds that bring salvation. Verse 5. And then the rest of the psalm is praise because he cares for and controls his creation. And of course, this would be especially appropriate for a harvest time when God has given a bountiful harvest. So uh, that's kind of a, a brief outline of the whole psalm. But we just are going to look at the first four verses this morning, just the first four. So uh, let me just read those one more time. I noticed that Jim has a newer New American Standard than I do. And so mine still has the these and thous in it. So it might sound a little bit different. But there will be silence before thee and praise in Zion, O God. And to thee the vow will be performed. O thou that dost, answer, that dost hear prayer, to thee all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou dost forgive them. How blessed is the one whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee. To dwell in thy courts, we will be satisfied with the goodness of thy house and thy holy temple. Well, this psalm initially caught my attention because of the seeming contrast there is in verse 1, contrast between silence and praise. Now, Steve just mentioned a little bit earlier that we can worship God in silence, and it seems like the psalmist is bringing something of that out. There will be silence before thee and praise in Zion. Actually, the word and is not in the in the original. There will be silence before thee, praise in Zion. So it just started me thinking along those lines, and I found out by reading some, some of the commentaries that that first line is rather difficult. It's difficult to translate. hard to know exactly how to translate. Uh, the commentaries that uh, I read said that the Hebrew wording is something like, to thee... Silence, praise. To thee, silence, praise. Other translations don't bring out this aspect of silence real clearly. The uh, NIV says, praise awaits you, our God. Praise awaits you, our God. Uh, The King James says, praise waiteth for thee, O God. But I actually, if you think about it, the, the idea of silence, I think, is implied there. It's more like praise silently waits for God. Praise silently waits for God. So uh, I'll be dealing with this verse, uh, especially verse 1 here, in relationship to how it is translated in the New American Standard. There will be silence before thee, praise in Zion, O God. That seems to be very close to the literal rendering that... uh, I discovered in the in the commentaries. So what does this mean? Silence before the and praise going together. Um, I think there's a number of possibilities. First, it could mean that there is a form of praise that is silent. That's what we what Steve was bringing out there earlier. There are praises that are never verbalized, but yet are very real and pleasing to God. 
For instance, sometimes we may find ourselves in situations that mirror what David was saying in a previous psalm. So if you look back to Psalm 62, he says this, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. There's times in the Christian life where that's the appropriate thing to do. My soul waits in silence for God only. You know there's not going to be any help anywhere else. You don't know how God's going to answer, but you wait in silence. Wait for God. We're quietly waiting for God's answer to a prayer. Often there's that time of waiting between when we pray and when God answers. Waiting until we can verbally break forth in outward praise for his intervention in a situation. We're waiting to praise God for his intervention, waiting silently for that. One writer said it like this. He said, um, I'm just paraphrasing. He said, it's like we are stringing our harp and tuning our instruments with patience and confidence so that they will be ready to joyfully praise God when he delivers us. When his deliverance comes, we're ready. We're, We're waiting silently, expectantly for God to intervene and answer. The idea is that even our silent waiting is a form of praise because it results from faith. Faith will wait. In that time of silence, you may be meditating on God. You should be meditating on God, the character of God, the person of Christ, meditating on his faithfulness his goodness, his holiness. That's a form of praise, just meditating in silence upon the character and attributes of God. So I think that's part of what is involved even in the way some of these other translations uh, put the verse, like in the King James, praise waiteth for thee, O God. Again, I think it's implied, praise silently waits for thee. Silently, non-frettingly, waiting for God. So that's one way of viewing the verse. Another way that this verse could be taken is that silence is a prerequisite to praise. Silence is a prerequisite to praise. Unless we have learned to be quiet... We're not going to really be able to praise God. Before our mouth can be opened in praise, it must be stopped as far as any kind of complaining or accusation against God. You're not going to, the two are incompatible. You're going to have to be silent with all your complaining and all your accusations and doubting God if you're going to really praise God. Paul says that this is part of the work of the law being applied by the Holy Spirit. This is in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable, become accountable before God. One of the things that God does as he applies his truth to our hearts is he shuts up our accusations, closes our mouth, complaining against God. 
our sins should shut us up as far as any complaint against God. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way. This is in Lamentations chapter 3. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? See what he's saying? What grounds do you have to complain against God considering how you live? In view of our sins. So, a searching question for all of us would be this. Has God ever shut me up enough that I've stopped complaining about God's ways of doing things? Has God ever shut me up enough that I stop complaining about God's ways of doing things? If not, we are probably not in the right disposition to praise God. I mean, you'll always be able to find something to complain about. But the opposite is true for the Christian that will silently wait for God. He's not looking around for things to complain about. That kind of person, the person that silently waits for God, will always be given new grounds for praise, new things to praise God about as he sees God answering the prayers that he's been waiting for him to answer. You'll have new things all the time to praise God for if you wait in silence before him. It's also true that silence, silence is one of the best preparations for praise. Thomas Akempis calls silence the nutriment of devotion. The nutriment of devotion. One of our really big problems in the 21st century especially here in America, is noise. Constant noise that drowns out the still, small voice of God. Radios, CDs, MP3s, TVs, and you could go on with the list. We get so accustomed to hearing things all the time that silence actually frightens us shouldn't. In the midst of all the noise, it's good to remember what Habakkuk wrote. He said, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The, the many and varied Competing voices and sounds here on earth must be tuned out if we're going to be tuned into praising God. So those are some thoughts related to that first part of verse 1. But let's go on and read the second part of the verse, which says, And to thee the vow will be performed. 
to thee the vow will be performed. Vows were a major part of the Old Testament um, understanding of serving God. And they were often associated with the subject of praise and worship in the temple. Let's just look up a couple examples of this in the Psalms. Uh, Psalms, uh, Psalm 22:25. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pray, pay my vows before those who fear him. So, right along with the great assembly, he mentions vows. And then Psalm 50, verse 14. Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. So they, you offered God their sacrifices of thanksgiving in the temple. You came to the temple with those sacrifices. But right along with that were vows. In fact, part of the actual bringing of the, those various sacrifices and offerings, you were fulfilling a vow. You had promised to do this because this is what God wanted there in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Covenant. And then 61... Verse 7 and 8. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. For I will sing praise to thy name forever that I may pay my vow day by day, vows day by day. So praising God, coming before God, and paying your vows. It was just a, it was just part of the mindset of, at that time. So that's why in this verse we see that praising God in Zion and paying your vows uh, going together. And as I said, a, a vow is essentially uh, a promise made to God. And uh, you could do a whole Bible study on the subject of vows. It's, it's actually very prevalent, especially in the Old Testament. But I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that today. Let me just say this, that I think the New Testament view is that for a Christian, our word is our vow. Our words are our vows. What do I mean? Well, I mean just what Jesus said, that our yes must mean yes, and our no must mean no. We don't have to say, I swear that this is the truth. If we say something, it's the truth. And I'd like to just point this out, just as vows and worship went together in the Old Testament, so now as Christians, simply and plainly keeping our word is an act of worship. Keeping our word is an act of of worship. We realize as Christians our words and actions are always under the eye of God. And as Christians we know we will be accountable for our words whether 
we make any kind of formal vow, vow or not. Our words are our vow. So, that's just a few brief thoughts on a subject that we could spend quite a long time on, subject of vows. But let's go on to verse 2. O thou who dost hear prayer, to thee all men come. This is a wonderful description of God. He's the God who does hear prayer. Our God is the God who actually hears prayer. It is his practice and pleasure to hear prayer. True prayers are not just words spoken into the air as some form of self-therapy or group therapy. God hears, God cares, God listens to the cries of the heart. Whether you're young or old, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, all flesh can come. That's what he says. O thou who dost hear prayer, to thee all men come, or literal flesh come. So let's just consider for a moment this little phrase, to thee all men come. David probably did not have this in mind, but God's real purpose for his temple, which is where the setting of this psalm is, God's real purpose for his temple was that it would be a house of prayer for all people. Not just the Jews, but for all people. And this idea of God being over all people is brought out a number of times in this psalm. You see it down in verse 5. By awesome deeds thou dost answer us in righteousness, O God, of our salvation. Thou who art the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And then you see it again in verse 8. And they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of, of thy signs. Thou dost make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. So, these are amazing words from the Jewish King David. Amazing words uh, for him to write at the time that he wrote this. He's acknowledging that God's desire is that all humanity would recognize his loving kindness and come to him. What prevents that? Well, the answer is in the next verse. Iniquities prevail against me. What prevents all flesh from coming to God in thankfulness? Just one thing prevents that. Sin. Or as he puts it here in this translation, iniquities. Our sins prevail against each one of us, no matter who we are or where we are. doesn't matter if we're Jew or Gentile. That's still the issue. Sins are both around us and within us, and will certainly they will certainly prevail against us if we try to deal with them in our own feeble strength. I think David was pointing out a contrast here in the first and last part of this verse. 
Our iniquities are too strong for us, but God can deal completely with them. Isn't that amazing how they just go together? Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou dost forgive them. I'm not totally sure if David is thinking here of sin from without, that is, sin that comes upon us from the ungodly and from satanic oppression and opposition, or sin that comes from within out of our own fallenness. But I am sure which is the greatest danger. Sin that arises from our own flesh is by far the greatest threat because this is the thing that opens the way for the sins from without. It's the sin from within that opens the door, gives a, a, a uh, foothold for those other type of sins, those from without. So that's what I want to zero in on here as far as dealing with this verse those sins from within. Only the person that has learned by bitter experience his bondage to sin can really rejoice in the gospel of Christ. I'm going to say that again. Only the person that has learned by bitter experience his bondage to sin can really rejoice in the gospel of Christ. That's the kind of person that can testify, my iniquities are too strong for me, but God is too strong for them. I really think that's part of what Jesus was saying in John. Let's turn to John chapter 7. And verse 17. Let's start with verse 16. Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but him, but his who sent me. And then he says this, If any man is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from, my, from myself. I think part of what Jesus was saying there is that if you truly try to do God's will, to keep God's law, you'll see how much you need the gospel. You'll see that his law, God's law, is, is a tutor to bring you to Christ. It's given to bring us to Christ. You'll see how holy God's law is. If a man is willing to do his will, that is the Father's will, you'll see how important my teaching is. Well, anyway, the first part of that verse then is a cry of despair. Iniquities prevail against me. The second part is an affirmation of delight in the gospel, delightful trust in God's forgiveness. One man said this, despair, despair of self is the mother of confidence in God. That's one to think about a little bit. Despair of self is the mother of confidence in God. As New Testament Christians, we recognize and realize even more than David the reality of the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice that was provided. 
we know that sin will prevail in our lives apart from the glorious gospel of, of God, of Christ. We cannot overcome sin through self-effort. As Jeremiah said, can a leopard change its spots? Our sinful nature will simply prevail against us, and any real attempt at dealing with sin apart from God's gospel will cause a person to acknowledge my iniquities are too strong for me. You, you try to deal with sin, truly deal with sin, apart from the gospel, and all you'll be able to do is throw up your hand and say, my iniquities are too strong for me. Now, it is true that sometimes people can displace one sin with another and make it look like they have victory. But the central core of self and sin is not dealt with and will not be until a person confesses, my sin is too great for me. In other words, we're confessing we need outside help that will make some kind of inside change in our lives. We need divine intervention. And that's what the gospel is all about. That's good news that there can be some help from outside. In Christ, God has atoned for our sins. He has covered them over by the, through the blood of Christ. Our guilt is gone because he's paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And not only that, he changes us inwardly into new creatures, giving us a new power to deal with sin that without that power, our sins are too great for us. With that power, they're not. And we can be changed from glory to glory. We may yet sin, but we are not slaves to sin. Our iniquities will not prevail against us. You may fall on occasion, but God will prevail in your life. Here's a little phrase if you want to remember one from this message. I may fail, but God will prevail. There will be substantial victory for the one who trusts in God's deliverance. Sin shall not have dominion over God's people, not over God's blood-bought people. There may be daily struggles with fleshly corruption and coldness, but sin will not have dominion. So in verse 3, then, we see a cry of distress, but also a shout of delight. Well, let's go on then to lastly consider verse 4. How blessed is the one whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee to dwell in thy courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, thy holy temple. Here we have the psalmist recognizing the blessedness of dwelling with God. God had chosen the Jewish people to draw near into that type of blessed relationship. And that was really centered in the tabernacle or later the temple. 
which symbolized the place where God would meet with his people, the place where his presence would be particularly made known. And, and David says here, even in the courts, even in its courts, which were the parts of the temple outside the main building, it was considered to be a blessing since you were near where God would especially manifest his presence. Thou dost choose and bring near to thee to dwell in thy courts. The courts were the outer parts of the, the tabernacle or temple. But we want to put this in a New Testament context so we can draw some, some truths, some New Testament truths from it. First thing I would say is that in Christ, the need for any kind of physical temple is done away with. Jesus said on one occasion, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. He fulfills all that the temple stood for and all that took place in the temple, all the sacrifices and the priesthood and the altar and the ark and the offerings. All of those things were types of Christ, things that were going to be fulfilled in his life and death and his resurrection. Got a little book here about the tabernacle that David Chalkley gave me, and I just want to make reference to it here briefly because the author brings out how Christ fulfills what the tabernacle was all about. He said, he, he lists seven things. The, the tabernacle was the place where God meets the sinner. That's fulfilled in Christ. Now he meets us in Christ. It was the place where God reveals himself to the sinner. Now he reveals himself to us in Christ. It was the place where God dwells with sinners. Now he dwells with us in Christ. It's the place where God speaks to, with the sinner. Now he speaks to us in Christ. It was the place where he accepts the sinner. Now he accepts us in Christ. It's the place where he forgives the sinner. Now he forgives us in Christ. And it was a place where he receives from the sinner. They would bring their, their offerings and sacrifices. Now he receives from us in Christ. That's the only way he receives anything from us. It's in Christ. So just some thoughts there. Of putting this Old Testament these Old Testament truths into a New Testament context. To expand on that one area of him dwelling with us, us dwelling with God in Christ, let me just say a few words on that. I think it's important to recognize that God did not choose us as his people primarily to keep us from his wrath. He chose us to bring us to himself. That's what the whole thing's about. To know him, to fellowship with him, to dwell in his presence. And now because of the new covenant, 
we have a new and living way into the very presence of God. We're not restricted to those outer courts that David was talking about here, but can go into the most holy place in Christ. We can be satisfied with the goodness of God's house in a far greater way than David was speaking about. It was all symbolic. It was all external, physical things. Now we're in a so much deeper way. We can be satisfied with the goodness of his house. Sin separates us from God, but God has in Christ permanently taken our transgressions out of the way so that we can commune with him. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what God desired from the very beginning. That's why he made people in his own image, to have fellowship and communion, to be in his presence. Though sin once prevailed against us, yet now God has graciously intervened, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We will be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, thy holy temple. What that means ultimately is beyond our imagination. We know something of it now through the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we're talking about, really what the ultimate meaning of these verses, especially verse 4, I say is beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination what it will mean to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. There was a song that, Christian song that was popular a few years ago, the title of which was, I Can Only Imagine. A couple of the lines say, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. It might be better to say that the blessedness of dwelling with God eternally is beyond our imagination. We, we just are talking about a realm that we can barely conceptualize. I wrote this down. I don't know if it's, I guess it's hyperbole, but it, may, it might make you think. I said it might take us a million years just to catch our breath enough to begin to verbally praise God. It will be breathtaking, and it may be so breathtaking that it will be a long time before we will be able to say anything. We just know so little of what we're talking about when we're talking about dwelling with God for eternity. What it will be like to be in the very presence of the King of Glory. We do, we're told that we have some apprehension of these things through the Spirit. Let me just read that verse to you in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 2. And this is verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And I think these, uh, I think what, Paul's saying here, these things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, um, all these things that God has prepared for us, God has given us some apprehension of that through the Spirit. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Something of the reality of this is there for us as Christians right now. In relationship to seeing the fulfillment of what the temple, the tabernacle and temple was all about and what David was speaking about here, really seeing the fulfillment of it, I think we, we get a little feel for how amazing the work of Christ is and what God has for us yet. By looking at the book of Revelation, just one verse Chapter 21, verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in it. It's talking about the new heavens and new earth. The heavenly Jerusalem. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Christ fulfills all those types and shadows related to what was taking place there in the temple and what made David so excited at that time, how much more excited should we be, really, thinking of what God has done for us in Christ and how we can draw into his presence, draw to to him through Christ, right into the presence of God, not the outer courts, but the Holy of Holies, and be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. So, anyway, that's some thoughts from the first four verses of this psalm. And may God help us to see and appreciate more of the reality of the things we've talked about here this morning. Why don't we pray? Father, we know it takes a work of your Holy Spirit to bring any of this home to our hearts and to change us from glory to glory and to see something of the wonder, the abundance, the greatness of what you've done for us in Christ and what you yet have for us in Christ. We pray, Father, that we would be people that would would be silent enough in our own hearts, having a quiet heart to be able to just apprehend 
some of these things we're talking about. Keep us from the noise of this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anything anyone has to share here before we get the meal ready?